If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me to Numbers 13. Just kidding. It's, it's Mark 13. If you've been with us the last few weeks, you probably knew where we were heading, that this is part three of a series in the Olivet Discourse, Mark chapter 13. Now, at the beginning of this study, two weeks ago, I said we need to be very clear that any uh, study of this discourse requires us to have humility. That's because there have been disagreements over the interpretation of this chapter for a very long time. But that has not kept us from seeking to glean as much as we possibly can from what is plain in this text. And so we have sought to make application from this, the lengthiest of Jesus's teachings in Mark's gospel, by way of looking at his imperatives to the disciples. That is to say, looking at Jesus's commands to his followers and doing so, we have gathered that his intentions for those disciples were pastoral. They are the ones, the disciples are the ones after all who he was addressing. Now that is not to say that the Olivet discourse is not applicable to us. It's just that we have to get at the application by way of principles. We believe that are applicable to us when we come to understand what Jesus was saying to them. To put that another way, this teaching of Jesus did not occur in a vacuum. It had a context. It had an occasion. It didn't come to us as a time capsule to be opened up in the year 2022. It had a context of the disciples asking a question. It was a response to Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple In verse 2, the disciples want to know when this will happen and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished. The gospel, according to Matthew, has made it plain to us that the disciples were really curious about two great events in history. The destruction of the temple, which occurred in A.D. 70, and the coming of the Messiah into his kingdom and the end of the age. And we have established a couple of times now, the disciples thought that those two great events would happen at essentially the same time. The million-dollar interpretive question for us in Mark 13 is, when is Jesus referring to the destruction of the temple, and when is he referring to his coming and the end of the age? Or sometimes, when is he speaking to things that are applicable throughout the time before his return? So, Uh, in order that we might once again see the occasion, the context of the disciples' question, and keep that in our minds, uh, I would like to invite you to stand, if you're physically able, for a protracted reading of Mark 13. I'd like to read the whole chapter again and remind us of the context, and then we'll focus in on just a few verses in a moment. This is the word of the Lord. As he was going out of the temple... One of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look, what massive stones, what impressive buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another. All will be thrown down. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, When will these things happen? 
And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Jesus told them, Watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, don't be alarmed. These things must take place, but it is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. But you, be on your guard. They will hand you over to local courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And it is necessary first that the gospel be preached to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say, but say whatever is given to you at that time, for it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those in Judea must flee to the mountains. A man on the housetop must not come down or go in to get anything out of his house. And a man in the field must not go back to get his coat. Woe to pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. Pray it won't happen in winter. For those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut those days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. Then if anyone tells you, see, here is the Messiah, see, there, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will arise and will perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And you must watch. I have told you everything in advance. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not shed its light. The stars will be falling from the sky and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branch becomes tender and sprouts leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he or it is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Now concerning that day or hour, no one knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Watch, be alert. 
for you don't know when the time is coming. It is like a man on a journey who left his house, gave authority to his servants, gave each one his work, and commanded the doorkeeper to be alert. Therefore, be alert, since you don't know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at the crowing of the rooster or early in the morning. Otherwise, when he comes suddenly, he might find you sleeping. And what I say to you, I say to everyone, be alert. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. That last command is important today. Be alert. Thinking caps on. This is a bit of a different message than usual, but it's important. There was so much packed into last week's sermon that even a brief review of the high points would take too much time that I need today in this message for verses 24 through 27 and its accompanying interpretive challenges. So if you're wondering how we got where we are, perhaps you're fuzzy on the occasion of the discourse or the meaning of verses 5 through 23, it would be helpful to go back and listen online to part one, part two, and then re-listen to today. And I think it'll all be a lot more clear. We thus devote ourselves entirely this morning to the consideration of part three of the overall outline I gave two weeks ago. This part I've titled The Coming of the Son of Man, verses 24 through 27. Perhaps your ESV Bible or CSV Bible has that very title above these verses. Remember those titles, those little titles are not inspired. They're not part of the original text, but they can be helpful. And I do think, as I demonstrated in the last message, that this text is naturally divided here before verse 24. And let me give you two reasons. 24 begins a new thought, first of all, because there is a framing of verses 5 through 23. So just scan up your Bible on the page and look at verse 5 and see the command, watch out that no one deceives you. And then scan your eyes down to verse 23, and 22 at least, false messiahs will rise, perform signs and wonders to lead you astray. Okay, to lead astray, that's the deception. And then he says, and you must watch. So there is the same command given at verse 23 that was given at verse 5. And it forms a wrapper, if you will, around the characteristics between the two advents of Christ and the command to flee to the mountains found in verses 14 through 23. That's one reason why verse 24, I think, is a new thought. But the second is an obvious thing, which is the beginning of verse 24. But, okay, an adversative. But in those days... After that tribulation, which seems to signal a change of some sort, change of subject, and at least some kind of sequence for us to take a look at. Right off the start, we know Jesus is presenting a sequence here. Whether he's, uh, whatever he's speaking about now in verse 24 is after that tribulation that he's already described in verses 14 through 23. In particular, I'm pointing you to verse 19 and 20. So more on the sequence of events to follow. For now, I just wanted you to feel comfortable in taking 24 through 27 as its own chunk. When I was being taught in, uh, in seminary about how to divide passages of Scripture, those of you who have split wood before, you know you kind of look to find where the seams are. This is a seam, and it's an evident seam. So let's deal with verses 24 through 27. 
And as I said two weeks ago, these four verses, by way of introduction, are the most difficult portion of the discourse to interpret. And the only hint that I gave was that a lot of the difficulty stems not from verses 24 through 27 themselves, but what Jesus says in verse 30. So what I'm calling, by way of introduction, the challenge of interpreting these four verses. You see the challenge right away, don't you? Look with me at verse 30. You see Jesus says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Now, if you think that Jesus is referring in verses 24 through 27 to the second coming at the end of all history, and then you just keep right on reading, you get to verse 30, and you think that verse 30 is referring to everything preceding in the chapter, then you've got a sticky dilemma. Because Jesus says in no uncertain terms, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. So on the face of it, the generation that Jesus was speaking to did pass away and his second coming did not happen. That's the challenge of interpreting this. Now, allow me to share with you what I've called the options for believing interpreters, for believing interpreters, because there is a very natural option for unbelievers. Liberal scholars will come to a verse like this and just say flat out, Jesus got it wrong. <laughs> he, he was talking about his second coming and then it didn't happen. Well, we can just dismiss that out of hand because we are believers. We think that Jesus is fully God. We know he is. And when he speaks, his words are true and they're trustworthy, which is what has led to the variety of interpretive stances on a text like this. Hear me. It's because of good, godly, Christian people trying to reconcile how all this fits together that we have multiple views. Are you tracking with me? Good and godly Christians. Their motives are right. Their instincts are accurate. Jesus can't be mistaken. So clearly we have to dig deep and try and fit this statement in verse 30 with the rest of the discourse in a way that does justice to the words Jesus himself spoke. So here's one option. It is the minority view. And for that reason, it's possible some of you will have never heard it. But it is put forward by Bible-believing Christians. And so I want you to know it's out there. Some commentators resolve this issue of verse 30 by seeing the entire Olivet Discourse up through verse 31 of Mark 13, all the way to 31, as related to the events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, including verses 24 through 27. The coming of the Son of Man in this view would not refer to the second coming of Christ at the end of time. Rather, it refers to the judgment of God witnessed on the destruction of the temple and the vindication of the Son of Man at the right hand of God, signaling a change in government. Now, at this point, some of you are scratching your heads. You're thinking to yourselves, how in the world? I just don't, I don't see that. That just makes no sense to me. Well, 
perhaps let me share with you some of the strengths of this minority view with you. I think it actually has a few commendable points to it. And oh, by the way, its defenders of this minority view are the likes of R.T. France, Kevin DeYoung, and R.C. Sproul, to name a few. These are not biblical lightweights. They're conservative, inerrantist, Bible-believing Christians who believe this. Now, to understand this view, you have to look very closely at verse 26. They will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And that coming referred to there is about, they say, the vindication and enthronement, the enthronement of the Son of Man at the right hand of God, receiving and exercising supreme authority. Where do they get this idea? This is one of the strengths. They get this idea looking at where the Son of Man language originates. It comes from the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. Now, I've added some bold emphasis on these verses for showing you the connecting words of Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. I kept looking. Oh, it doesn't show up on the bold here. So let me just, I'll kind of say the bold emphasis. All right. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. There's the coming that they're referring to. And he came up to, so the coming is not a second coming. It's a coming to someone. The son of man came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, the son of man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. In other words, what is being described by Jesus when he uses this phrase, the coming of the son of man in verse 26 on the clouds is something like a change of government. The son of man coming to receive a kingdom from the ancient of days. The temple and all that it stood for is out. The Son of Man is in charge. So you can see right away, one of the strengths of this view is that it looks to the original context of Daniel, which concerns the Son of Man's vindication before God. Another strength is that this interpretation demonstrates a strong narrative connection between what has been being talked about in verses 14 through 23, namely the destruction of the temple. So just kind of, it's a flowing thought out of 14 through 23 and right into verse 24. And then, most importantly, this view makes sense of verse 30 in a strong way. The generation alive at the time Jesus delivered these predictions to his disciples did see the destruction of the temple. So if the coming of the Son of Man is referring to that event, then no more interpretive challenge. This is why good, godly people take this view. But you say, hold on, okay, uh, you've explained coming of the Son of Man thing, but what about 24 and 25? All the cosmic disturbances and such, surely that has to be the end of the age. But even that language of stars falling from the sky, heavens being shaken, again, according to those who support this view, is also drawn from the Old Testament and is to be understood by the disciples in that context. Verses of scripture like Isaiah 13, 10, 
as an example. Indeed, the stars of the sky and its constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shine. Old Testament language. In passages like that one, these cosmic disturbances are connected with Yahweh coming forth for unusual activity in the world. Judgment, mercy, it's language that points to God intruding into the affairs of nations. So it's possible, they say, that the judgment of God on Jerusalem, on Jerusalem, is being described in the very same way that his judgment on the various Gentile nations in the Old Testament had been described. Edom will receive this judgment. Moab will receive this. And the stars will fall in the sky and the sun, da, da, da. All of that language is now just being applied figuratively in a way to Jerusalem's judgment. The Jewish nation had rejected the Messiah and God will judge them is what this interpretation is. Okay, well, Pastor Jason, I guess I sort of track with you on that. But what about, what about verse 27? The gathering of the elect from the four winds and the angels in verse 27. And once again, there is another possible way of looking at that. The word angels in Greek is a word that can also mean messengers. And the elect to be gathered could be the Gentiles who have yet to hear the gospel. Remember in Matthews, it says, Uh, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So there's a gathering of nations to be brought in from the far reaches of the earth, such that the destruction of the temple began an age of the ingathering of the Gentiles through preachers, messengers, being sent out with the gospel. All right. I've tried my very best to do justice to the minority view here, which, oh, by the way, put a pause in that. I think we need more ability to do that in our world. If you could explain what you think the other person is saying in such a way that I hope that somebody who held this view would say, yeah, that's what I believe, then you're doing it right. Okay, so I've tried my best to do justice to what I think they hold because it does have the great strength of taking the Bible seriously. And if you accept it at face value, it eliminates the challenge of verse 30. Just straight away, it's gone. However, there are a number of weaknesses to this view. And I would like to share those weaknesses as well as arguments for the majority view, which I hold. And I hope to persuade you that the effort of our brothers and sisters in Christ to make sense of this text in that way is unnecessary. It's interesting, though, how piece by piece, right, each one of those concerns can kind of be addressed. But to me, it's taking the whole thing And it feels like we're doing a lot of hermeneutical gymnastics, interpretive gymnastics to come to that view. That's my opinion. Now, so let me share with you, number four, the weakness says of, I missed the word of on your printed outline, the weaknesses of the minority view and arguments for the majority view. So if you made a note on minority view, it would be that 24 through 27 is dealing only with the destruction of the temple. So these are the weaknesses of that view. For one, and I'm kind of working backwards, the Gentile mission that supporters of the minority view say is the gathering of the elect by the messengers being sent out had already long begun. It had long since begun before the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Some of you who are good students of the Bible know Paul was already dead 
by AD 70. He had written all his letters, done all his missionary journeys, and the ingathering of nations had already been long underway. It doesn't seem proper, therefore, to view verse 27 in that light. Secondly, while it is true that the cosmic disturbances of the Old Testament were not always necessarily literal, it seems as though all the previous passages about cosmic distress in the Old Testament point us forward to the day of the Lord when he will return and a literal fulfillment of those typological forerunners will take place. D.A. Carson says the cosmic portents, do you remember that word from two weeks ago? The signs, the negative signs of the skies are probably meant to be taken literally because of the climactic nature of the Son of Man coming at the end of all time. Jesus himself says in this discourse, heaven and earth will pass away. The entire earth as we know it will pass away. And that word for pass away is the same word that Peter used in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. And also in Revelation 21 and verse 1, if you want to make those notes. Hopefully yesterday, if you're doing your Bible reading plan, you read 2 Peter chapter 3. And you read Dr. Carson's comments on that. But in chapter 3 verse 10, Peter says, The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will, here's the word, pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. To me, that sounds so familiar to verses 24 and 25 of Mark 13. So it seems like the cosmic disturbances should be taken in a connection with Jesus' second coming. Then what about the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel? What of that phrase that the coming to the ancient of days that minority view sees as the enthronement scene of Jesus. Is that to be thought of as his vindication, as Jesus' vindication when Jerusalem is judged? D.A. Carson responds to that thought by saying, quote, under the minority view, the fall of the temple should almost be celebrated. And although Christians did see the events that happened in 70 A.D., as a sort of vindication of Jesus, and it did formally abolish the old covenant and the sacrificial system, they also saw, Christians saw the destruction of the temple as a great tragedy. Furthermore, the picture of the Son of Man receiving a kingdom in Daniel seems to indicate the end of pagan rule and pagan empires on the earth. When what's happening when the Romans invade Jerusalem and put a siege on it is the expansion of pagan rule on the earth. The Romans further asserted their dominion, so it hardly seems like Jesus received a kingdom in a consummated or meaningful way. If that's what the Son of Man thing is about. Lastly, the parallel in Luke's gospel of the Olivet Discourse says this. They will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with great power and glory. But when these things begin to take place, stand up, lift your heads, because your redemption is near. Could Christians, goes the question, at the fall of the temple in AD 70, actually say, our redemption is drawing nigh? 
A vindication of Jesus, perhaps, but redemption? For these reasons and more, according to my present light, I reject the minority view. Therefore, okay, we've taken all this time by introduction so far to come to a conclusion that verse 24 through 27 is not, in my opinion, about the fall of the temple in AD 70. It is about the coming of Jesus at the end of all time. Now, before we move on to letter B in your outline, I want to make clear that the majority view has a number of variations to it. So all we've established is that verse 24 through 27 is about the second coming. We haven't solved the interpretive challenge. Because if that's referring to the second coming, and then Jesus says in verse 30, this generation will certainly not pass away, then when you see these, like, how does this all fit together? So the people that see the majority view as this is about the second coming have a few different ways of thinking about verse 30. One view is that the word generation, like the word for angels, has a couple of different meanings in Greek. Some, like an NIV study note might have this. Some other notes might have it. It might say, like a little footnote, race. This race will not pass away. Now, there's kind of, I'm going to do like a little branch off of this. So the race view would say, this stubborn race of people, like humans, will never pass away until Jesus comes again. Okay, that's kind of one thought. Like, there will always be humans, as destructive and as terrible as times may get, there will still be stubborn people in the world until he comes. All right, that's one way of looking at understanding this. Another kind of branch off of that is that when, if this is about a race, then maybe it's about the Jewish race. So they argue Jesus is saying the Jewish race will not pass away until the end of the age. But as one commentator points out, in other passages in this gospel, in Mark's gospel, just for context here, the words this generation are always clearly referring to the contemporaries of Jesus. This generation. You could look at Mark 8:12. You could look at Mark 8:38. You could look at Mark 9:19 if you want to write down some examples. And there's no consideration from the context that lends support to any other proposal than the word generation being more literally something like 40 years. Furthermore, if that's what Jesus meant, why didn't he just say, this Jewish race will not pass away until all these things take place? Now, then there's the view Again, that the second coming is being talked about in verse 24 to 27. There's a view that the, this generation will certainly not pass away. Jesus really meant that generation will certainly not pass away. And you're like, what? Okay, this is getting complicated. No, stick with me. The people who hold this view say in verses 29 and 30, there's a natural flow of thought. So look at verse 29 in your Bibles. Remember, thinking caps on, be alert. Let's just track with these different ideas. In the same way, when you see these things happening, recognize that he or it is near at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation, so they say this generation equals the ones that see all these things happening. 
at the end of time. And that kind of brings an import of the meaning that. That generation that sees these things will not pass away. Does that make sense? Including all the things of verses 24 through 27. So they say, the generation that sees all these things, including the coming of the Son of Man on the clouds with great power and glory, that generation will not pass away. Certainly not. But again, humbly, I argue this view is also fraught with difficulty. First of all, when you see the coming of the Son of Man in power and glory, that is not a sign of something else to come. That's the end of the world. So why say that the generation that sees the coming of the Son of Man, if you're including that as the part of these things in verse 29, why say that that generation will not pass away? That's an unnecessary assertion. And we could also ask the same thing that we asked of the other view. Namely, why didn't Jesus say that generation? He could have used that word. That generation will not pass away. Now, I want to remind you, all of this variety of views are all coming from a good place. So when I'm up here and I'm rejecting some of them, I want you to simul- I want to also be heard as simultaneously affirming in those views a desire to uphold Jesus's word and take it seriously. To me, that is to be commended. And as we have said at the outset, we are to all have humility. So let me now humbly submit to you what I believe Jesus is saying. I personally hold that when Jesus spoke to the disciples in verse 30, a solemn promise, truly I tell you, verily I say to you, when he said, this generation will certainly not pass away, he meant this generation I am now speaking to will not pass away. Now, if you take that as your fixed point for interpreting Mark 13, The issue is not with him saying, this generation will certainly not pass away. The issue is, what does he mean by when you see all these things? It's just shifted the interpretive question. Now, allow me to then give you a justification for taking this sentence in verse 30 as Jesus speaking to the generation living while he spoke these words to the disciples and seeing these things in verse 29 and 30, as dealing with the destruction of the temple. Okay, so again, thinking caps on. I believe what I'm about to share with you is a crucial indicator of how to interpret the text. It's something you can look at in your English Bible, and I hope you see what I see. All right, follow with me. Starting with the context, the disciples ask Jesus a question. Remember, Jesus is answering a question the disciples have. And he says, when you see these things, okay? He says, he gives them second person plural commands. We've talked about that. Y'all do this. Y'all do that. Y'all disciples, be aware of this. Be aware of that. Okay, follow along. Verse five, watch out that no one deceives you. The you in the pew is not the you in the view. The you is the disciples. Watch out, no one deceives you. Verse 7, when you hear of wars, you shouldn't be alarmed. Okay, if you look at verse 7, your Bible might say, don't be alarmed. I'm going to explain something once that I'm going to refer to a few times. In Greek, it imports the who's he talking to in the verb. 
like in Spanish and other languages, he's saying, y'all don't be alarmed. That is in the text, okay? So even if it just says, don't be alarmed, he's saying, you, you guys don't be alarmed, all right? Keep that in mind. Verse 9 is emphatic in the Greek. You yourselves be on your guard. You will be flogged. You will stand before governors and kings. And we said that's exactly what happened in the book of Acts. The disciples themselves did all those things. When they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry what you will say, but what is given to you. Are you hearing a a phrase here? You, verse 13, will be hated. Then verse 14, critically, when you, he keeps on. When you see the abomination of desolation, not the people at the end of time, not some future generation, when you see it. Verse 18, the verb pray is another one of those second person plural imperatives. Imported in the the verb itself is you pray. You disciples pray. It won't happen in winter. Why would he command the disciples to pray about something that would never happen in their lifetime? You pray. Verse 21, if anyone tells you about some false Messiah, you should not believe him. Verse 23, and you must watch. But now look very carefully at what is missing in verse 24 through 27. Never once does Jesus give a second person plural command or even say the word you. Not one time. To the contrary, he says, he says beginning in verse 24, In those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will be falling from the sky, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Not you. Not you will see it. They will see it. And reading along in this chapter... We see you, 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 they. It's like a game of duck, duck, goose. Duck, 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 goose. It's honking at us like a goose. They will see the Son of Man. But then notice what happens in verse 28. You can't see it again in English, but it's part of the original verb. Bake right right into the command, learn is yet another second-person plural imperative. Verse 28, Jesus says to the disciples, y'all learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its branches become tender and sprout leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you should recognize that he or it is near. In verse 26, they will see something. In verse 29, you will see these things happening. You, disciples, will be able to recognize that he or it is near. Then we get to verse 30, and Jesus says, truly I tell you. And I have no reason to believe in any case Jesus has changed the address. He is addressing his disciples. Truly I tell you, disciples, this generation presently alive, will certainly not pass away until all these things take place. Do you see, okay, how the, the, the discourse has shifted away from a direct address to you to the mention of a they, the only they, verse uh, 24 and 5, we saw that in that section, 
The second coming, when it's the subject, Jesus shifts to they. But then he shifts back to you in verse 28. Now, in addition to that piece of evidence, I believe that alone personally, that's enough to convince me from the text to argue that Jesus meant the disciples' generation would see the signs of the destruction of the temple and not the coming of the Son of Man. But in addition to that, the use of the words, these things, in verse 29, is a connecting phrase. And it draws us all the way back to the original question the disciples asked. Do you remember in verse 4? They say, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? These things on the disciples' minds was when Jesus prophesied the destruction of the temple. And up through verse 23, Jesus is referring to these things. In verse 23, look at verse 23. He says, you must watch. I've told you everything. In the CSB, you could write underneath it, all things. That's what the word is. All things. I've told you all things in advance. Jesus says, I've told you all the things you disciples need to know beforehand. Jesus says that in verse 23. Then in verses 24 through 27, not a word about these things. He is, in fact, addressing their implied question about his coming and the end of the age, but he never says, you will see that. He says, they will see it. Then, back in verse 28 and 29, when Jesus is giving direct commands to them, he resumes the language that he had taken up in 4 through 23. And he says, when you see these things happening, visible, observable to you disciples, in answer to the question you've already asked me, you can know that he or it is near. They asked, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of these things? And Jesus answers them, When you see these things, truly, I say, you disciples can take it to the bank. This generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. You see, the disciples wanted a sign. And we can be clear about one thing. All the these things and the you's, you're all just like, what? Okay, Here's, here's something simple. It's a logical thing. Axiomatically, The end cannot be a sign of the end. (laughs) If verse 24 through 27 is about the end of everything, as I believe I've already demonstrated, like the second coming of Christ at the end of time, then verse 24 through 27 themselves cannot be included in the things that are to be seen as a sign of the end within which a generation will not pass away. That is a logical impossibility. It took me like three minutes to write that one paragraph, so I'm not going to assume that it was clear. I just want to reread it so you're tracking. The disciples wanted a sign, and we can be clear about one thing logically. The end cannot serve as a sign of the end. It's just the end. And if verses 24 through 27 are indeed about the end of all things, as I believe I've demonstrated, then verse 24 through 27 cannot be included in the these things of verses 29 and 30 to be seen as a sign of the end within which a generation will not pass away. It is logically impossible. So we conclude that consistently the phrase all these things and the accompanying visibility 
of these things to the disciples in this discourse has had an almost inseparable connection to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. They are things that will be observable to the disciples as both non-signs like wars and rumors of wars and uprisings and famines and persecution. Those are, but the end is not yet. Okay, you can see all those things happening, disciples, but don't be alarmed. Don't worry about that stuff. But when you see the abomination of desolation, that's a sign for you, something you can visibly see. It's a part of these things that no stone will be left upon another. Okay, that was the introduction. Letter B. We have determined by way of this lengthy introduction that Jesus was referring to the second coming, the second advent in verse 24 through 27, and that those same verses are not meant to be included in the these things of verse 29. So it is not a difficulty, not a challenge for Jesus to say, this generation living at the time he spoke these words would not pass away because he didn't mean to include the second coming in that statement. And of course, we also know from history that the generation alive when Jesus spoke the Olivet Discourse did not pass away before the destruction of the temple. There were in fact many who would have been alive to see it happen. But now let's look more closely at verse 24 through 27 themselves. See how the destruction of the temple was meant to be the sine qua non of the second advent. The sine qua non is a Latin phrase defined as an essential condition, a thing that is absolutely necessary. Literally, it means without which not. Without the destruction of the temple in AD 70, no second advent. That's the sine qua non, okay? You have to have this first and then that. Jesus says in verse 24, in those days, after that tribulation, you're a good Bible student, so you ask yourself, after what tribulation? We'll scan up the page. You see verse 19. Those will be days of tribulation, the kind that hasn't been from the beginning of creation until now and never will be again. Tribulation referred to is a tribulation that will come on Jerusalem when they're surrounded by armies and besieged. Look at Luke's gospel to see that that is exactly what he's describing there. In other words, the coming of the Son of Man will happen after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. In a relative sequence, the siege comes first. Any false claims that the Son of Man had come while the temple was still standing, you could just flat out put away. There's no way you can believe that. It's false because the destruction of the temple must come before the coming of the Son of Man. Now, in saying it like this, Jesus is not placing an exact chronology on the relative value of the timing of the sequence. And that's often how predictive prophecy comes to us, isn't it? It usually gives a definite sequence with an indefinite time frame. The classic example that's used is the mountain peaks, okay? So I'm going to kind of turn this way, and we're all looking like towards the cross as though there are mountain peaks in front of us. And from our point of view, these two mountains seem compressed. They seem close. We see this peak, that peak. Okay, but then from a different point of view, they're this far apart, like when you were looking at them from another angle. And that's often how predictive prophecy works. 
they're kind of smashed together when you look at it, but then history shows, oh, there was a lot of time that happened between that. Like the Isaiah passage about the sign of the the virgin will bear a child. Okay, that actually happened in some real way back then, but it was a long time before the the real Prince of Peace came into the world, right? So that's kind of how predictive prophecy is often given. But think with me about how incredibly encouraging these words would have been to the faith of the disciples within their lifetimes. Jesus gave a prediction that on the face of it seems utterly impossible. We talked about million-pound stones gone, completely destroyed, and it actually happened in their lifetimes. How much more, then, would they be convinced that the Son of Man will at some point after that time come with great power and glory? After that tribulation, Jesus says, They will see the Son of Man coming with great power and glory. The fulfillment of the destruction of the temple would have given them an unshakable confidence in his word that he would return. Because it happened just like he predicted the destruction, they could be assured he would come again. But then notice, secondly, the scene of the second advent. We've got the sine qua non, the scene. I've already indicated, I believe that this is a literal scene, a literal cosmic disruption, the likes of which have been pointed to metaphorically in the Old Testament whenever God had intruded in the affairs of nations. But here, where we're talking about the end of time in verses 24 and 25, the Son of Man will be coming to set up an everlasting kingdom and a dominion over the entire earth and every nation therein. So it seems to me this will be accompanied by cosmic, literal cosmic wonders. And when the sun is darkened, as scripture says, imagine in your mind's eye the brilliance of the glory of the Son of Man when he brightens the sky as he returns. And scripture says they will see the Son of Man coming in great pow- power and glory. That's what I'm calling the seeing of the second advent. We've got the sine qua non, the seeing, and the seeing. Mark Strauss writes in his commentary, though it's an unknown time, Christ's return will be bodily and visible. Okay, there's been a lot that you couldn't amen today. That's worth an amen. Okay, (laughs) it will be bodily and visible. We affirm this in the BFM 2000. The same nature as how he departed. Think of Acts chapter 11, verse 1. They said, men of Galilee, the angels at the ascension of Jesus, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven on the clouds. When Jesus comes again, he will deliver his people from suffering, rescue them from the wrath, bringing reward to those who have been have persevered to the end. It will be accompanied, Christ's coming, by the resurrection of those who have died in Christ into glorified, imperishable bodies and will initiate the permanent dwelling of Christ with his people. Friends, Jesus is coming again, and every eye, Scripture says, will see it. Unlike the first advent when God, as one pastor put it, slipped his son into the world by stealth, At his second advent, Matthew's gospel says, all the tribes of the earth will see it. 
John, in writing to the churches, as Brother Wayne read for us this morning, says, look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be, amen. And when he returns, I want us lastly to take note of the central activity that will take place upon his return. I've called it the sickle of the second advent, verse 27. Scripture tells us at the end of the age, there will be a harvest. Farmer will be gathering into his barn, as it were, the wheat and the tares. Jesus says in verse 27, he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. But we also know from other passages of scripture, it is not just the elect who will be gathered in. Matthew thirteen forty one says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. Revelation makes this plain. Chapter 14, verse 14. John says, then I looked and there was a white cloud and one like the Son of Man was seated on the cloud with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Another angel came out from the, of the temple, crying out in a loud voice to the one who was seated on the cloud, Use your sickle and reap, for the time to reap has come, since the harvest of the earth is ripe. So the one seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth and the earth was harvested then another angel who also had a sharp sickle came out of the temple in heaven yet another angel who had authority over fire came from the altar and he called with a loud voice the one who had the sharp sickle use your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the vineyard of the earth because its grapes have ripened The angel swung his sickle at the earth and gathered the grapes from the vineyard of the earth and he threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. And the press was trampled outside the city and blood flowed out of the press up to the horse's bridles for about 180 miles. Friends, if you are alive when Christ returns, the same eyes that are seeing me preach if they're still awake. (laughs) The same eyes that you're using to see me preach are the eyes you will use to see him in all his majestic glory. And my question for you by way of application, will he gather you with his own or will he banish you with the tares? Dear friend, what is important today is clear. This text is not confused about the fact Jesus will come again. Even those who hold that 24 through 27 is about the temple in AD 70, they very clearly say verses 32 through 37 is about his second coming. This and other scriptures we've read today make very plain Jesus will come back and he will gather his people to be with him in heaven and he will banish those who have rejected him to hell. 
In Revelation, the text said, the sickle will go out and gather grapes for his wrath. Consider with me, are you under God's wrath today? The Bible teaches that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God is perfectly just to condemn us in wrath for our sin. By nature, scripture tells us that fallen humanity, because of the disobedience of our first ancestors, we are children of wrath. That's what the Bible says in Ephesians 2. It says we were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we once walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them. That's what Brother Wayne said. We are justified sinners here today. We lived in our fleshly desires, carrying out the indications of our flesh and our own thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others also. John's gospel says in chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the clear question, do you believe the Son? Do you believe the Son? If perhaps with the eyes of faith, you've seen how the son accurately predicted the destruction of the temple within a lifetime of his disciples, then I beg you to see him as trustworthy in all he says and everything he's done. He is the same one who spoke the true and trustworthy words at the beginning of Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. And believe the good news. Believe the good news that Jesus died to bear the wrath of God for your sins. Repent of those sins. Put them behind you and turn to him. And then Jesus rose as good news to guarantee your everlasting life with him. Such that he could promise, believe in me and you will have eternal life. But let me warn you, do it today. Do it now. Because the sine qua non of his return, at least according to this account, has already happened. And scripture says no one knows the day or the hour of his return, so don't delay. Matthew's gospel records that on the same Mount of Olives, Jesus spoke these words, as the days of Noah were, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, given in marriage, Until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and it swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Listen, friends, do you have wedding plans this summer? I know some of you who do. Friends, do you have plans to have a nice uh, time out to eat today or the end of the week? Enjoy your weekend? Are you making plans for next school year? Are you planning on the picture-perfect summer vacation in your mind? That's just how it will be, Jesus says, when he comes again. Are you ready? Sir, are you ready to see him in majestic glory? Ma'am, are you ready Will your redemption be drawing nigh? Or are you unprepared to face the wrath of God? 
that today you can freely be covered for in the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Be ready today. I invite you to repent and believe the good news of Jesus Christ now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the, uh, the privilege of coming to your word today. Lord, there have been difficult moments of considering a number of interpretive views, but Father, they've pale. They pale in comparison to the last 10 minutes of this message. The important things are clear. And Heavenly Father, we know that you will send Jesus and he will come again. Jesus will return and he will gather the wheat and the tares, the central activity at Christ's return will be the ingathering and his judgment. So Lord, I pray that today that there have been some here that perhaps are hearing for the first time or considering for the first time the truthfulness of the reality of your return and the judgment that will come. And I also pray that the urgency of the message today will stoke in souls of men and women and boys and girls a need to put their faith and trust in you and you alone for their salvation. Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners and we thank you for your grace in sending Jesus to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. Lord, we thank you for your word and the time we spent in it today. We ask your blessing on this time of response. In Jesus' name, amen.